Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. If you've wandered into a bookshop or a library recently, you may have encountered a relatively new section cropping up called women's writing. Have you ever wondered what it actually means? Writing by women, writing for women, writing about women? I'm Flora Symington, a second-year English student at Somerville College, and I'm here with Lorna Hudson, Professor of English Literature at Merton College and an expert on early modern literature, who recently gave a lecture series here at Oxford in which she asked this very question. Lorna, hello, thank you for joining me. Hello, Flora, thanks for having me. Um, Could you just give us a brief overview to begin with of women's writing in the period that we're going to be talking about? Okay, sure. Well, the period we're talking about, I suppose, is sort of 1550 to 1700 or thereabouts, 1660. Um, And this is a period of extraordinary efflorescence in men's writing. So Virginia Woolf famously said that every other man could write a song or sonnet. In other words, literary um, education was at the centre of ordinary grammar school education. So any boy who went to a grammar school was taught how to write poetry. So it was really very common as um, an activity for uh, boys and men. Then the question arises, um, women who didn't have this formal education, you know, could they write? Um, And at first, um, I mean, initially in the study of this period, the formalist study, when English first started as a university study, no one was particularly interested in that question. And then um, in the later 20th century, people began to be, um, historians began to be interested in the woman's voice and recovering the woman's voice from various kinds of archive. And they also began to turn to um, the printed writings of women that were available. There are very, very few of these um, writings in print. I mean, there are There's um, printed works by Isabella Whitney from the 1560s. Then there's um, a bit of a a gap, really. And you get Amelia Lanyard's 1610 Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, uh, Mary Rose Urania, and various, and then more printed works um, uh, in the 17th century. But um, compared with men's writing, it's a small amount, and also compared with Italian and French women's writing, secular writing in the same period. I should probably say that I'm talking about secular writing generally, because although there is a lot of devotional writing, that's not what students of English literature particularly want to read. Mm. Um, So while there is um, a lot of women's writing, a lot of it is devotional and not so much secular lyric poetry, although there is some of that. And um, there's not so much printed writing. Mm. However, um, recent scholars have expanded the scope of women's writing greatly by looking for manuscripts that we didn't know about. So the writings of Hester Poulter, who was a very prolific poet in the 17th century, have now been made available um, by a wonderful project, the Poulter Project. So there there is a, a, a greatly expanded canon now. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, so would you say it's kind of a an era in which women's writing grows a lot in, in England or is secular writing in particular? It does. Yes, it does. But it has a slow start compared yeah. with Italian and French. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that's been proposed for this is the Italians have um, a role for women, the courtigiana honesta, the honest courtesan. Um, it's a Catholic country and... Um, courtesanship is more acknowledged. And um, in 
in Reformation England, this is not a position that's a really an acknowledged one. In other words, you don't have learned women whose role is to entertain men um, mm. and to be learned and witty as well as um, alluring. Um, absolutely. I think that's kind of what we what we were going to be bringing on to talking about um, later in this interview is, so women do have a role of writing this period, but it's not necessarily, as you said in your lecture series, where we we should be looking for women's voices in this period. They may be authoring texts, but that's not necessarily the most kind of interesting place that we can look for female experience. Although, as I know, that's not something that you <laughs> necessarily condone as a concept at all. Uh, so could, yeah, could you yeah. expand a little bit on this on this idea of where we're looking for women's voices or, or if we are indeed even looking for them in literature? Well, you've raised a number of um different points and you've used the vocabulary of voice and experience. So I suppose um, the place to start is to say that um, this is a period which seems full of women's voices in that um, the genres in which men are writing, um, lyric poetry, uh, prose romance, but predominantly stage plays, seem to be full of the most interesting and eloquent female voices. These are, however, I would, you know, one would hesitate to say that these are the voices of what we would call women's experience, um, because they are the voices uh, um, of fictions of women who, uh, and these fictions have been imagined by men who live in a culture that is so unlike ours, that is so preoccupied with women's chastity and with the legitimacy of children <laughs> that um, it won't um, permit women on the stage. So these fictions have been composed by men, but they're also performed by boys. So they're very, very far and away from women's experience. Um, so that's why we would hesitate. And they sound like women to us, but then we may think, well, um, that's because we're so used to the sound of that particular story about women you know i mean it could be quite culturally constructed um so that's not to say that they don't that um there aren't um insights into what women may have experienced in cultures like that but on the whole they're 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 um yeah they're fictions of women composed by men who have a very strong and largely disavowed um investment in 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 female sexual purity mm, absolutely and this kind of brings us on to the idea of, of the male gaze and sort of whether it is valid to look at women that have been constructed by men whether mm. this is something that is helpful to, to do i mean do you think that there is mm, a value mm. that you think we can learn about women's lives for instance from the way they're written by men or do you think this is kind of something that we shouldn't really be no i think we can learn things i mean i think it's actually very instructive. Um, I suppose I'm moving into interdisciplinarity here, but it's very instructive to look at the work of social historians, wonderful social historians like Laura Gowing, who's worked on um, in her book, um, Common Bodies, Women, Touch and Power in 17th Century England. She looks at legal records of women who've been brought before magistrates for having illegitimate children, for example. And I mean, these are really quite harrowing narratives in which the women say they were promised marriage and then, uh, you know, by a master in a house because these are often serving women and then they were nearly killed or, you know, whatever. Um, and they're very rarely believed in their account. And they also find it difficult to articulate in decorous terms what has happened to them because 
if you speak shamefully about sex, you're also, you know, you also shame yourself. So there are many issues here. But if you read those things alongside a play like Midsummer Night's Dream, which people nowadays tend to think of as a place celebrating sexuality in all its forms, you can see that there are undercurrents of worry about sexual shame articulated by the women in that play. So Hermia, for example, asks Lysander to lie farther off, even though he says, oh, but we've sworn vows. Um, it's not that she's frigid, as modern directors say, it's that she doesn't, she fears um, that he will lie with her and then leave her dishonored, as so many women in the 17th century were, you know, or with an illegitimate child. Similarly, Helena, who has been, you know, in the same play, um, when Demetrius and Lysander both seem to be in love with her, she doesn't say, oh, how wonderful you're in love with me. She thinks she's being mocked and sexually shamed. Mm -hmm. So I think those undercurrents of shame are something that we can sort of delve a little bit deeper into and, and see that there are things that these plays are telling us, but that we've tended not to um, notice that because of because of assuming um, our own modern uh, mores, I think. No, absolutely. It's interesting what you say about interdisciplinarity and looking at these these male author texts alongside other texts at the time. And um, perhaps this is kind of a problem with the, this genre, this kind of critical genre of women's writing. It's not as you can even walk, walk into a bookshop nowadays and kind of see like women's writing sort of sectioned off as its mm. own mm. genre. Do you think that it's more helpful to to study women's writing alongside other writing of the period, whether that's uh, from other disciplines or whether that's other literature? Do you think that's the way that we should be studying it? Or should is there a, is there a kind of an argument for studying yeah. women's writing as a specific category? Um, well, I, I sort of like to hedge my bets on that one because mm -hmm. I've been finding reading um, exams, reading exam work, that people have been generally um, putting their answers on women's writing, you know, putting a, a male and female writer in dialogue, like, for example, Catherine Phillips with John Donne. And Phillips clearly read Donne and, and uh, you know, has similar sorts of metaphysical um, analogies and conceits. So that that actually works really well. Um Equally, one would say that um, women who are writing, um, you know, devotional writing or who are talking about, uh, for example, Protestant martyrs in France or, you know, the women writing histories, they don't want to be seen as writing about women's experience so that, you know, we're, we're reading them in the way they'd want to be read if we read them alongside men writing those kinds of histories as well. Having said that, however, um, I think that there is a case in editing and anthologizing for putting women writers together. And there's a recent anthology by Sarah Ross and Elizabeth Scott Bauman, Women Writers of the Civil War, I think, which does a great job of um, pulling up some specific, uh, some sort of specific things about women's experience in the Civil War um, as um, with all the changes of allegiance and with the fact that women were supposed to have the same kinds of political allegiances as their husbands. So there are sort of specific ways in which that makes sense as an anthology. It's also a very good anthology because um, it, it also uh, edits for the first time many manuscripts that have been completely unknown. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe there's a distinction between um, anthologies and editing um, and um and the teaching and the reading. I certainly think that it's it's good to teach and read women writers alongside male writers. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah, there's a distinction there between kind of who, 
as much as in an ideal world we would like to be able to study these these people in dialogue there's an argument for women and writers getting forgotten and unless we spent it's kind of the positive discrimination argument unless we yeah. specialize in making anthology just for women writers are we then just going to end up neglecting and have kind of Catherine Phillips shoved into one anthology with 19 men I think I think I think that's right um but I also think that there's a, a larger point to be made about the lack of good editions of women writers and I don't think I said this in the lecture but um it's really a shame that Catherine Phillips hasn't isn't in any good edition. Um, there's an old edition um, in Germaine Greer's sort of Stump Cross publications by Patrick Thomas, but it's 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 inadequate in terms of editing practice and footnotes. It really is, and and I feel I feel really strongly about this. Um, the recovery of women's writing coincided with a period when unediting was fashionable. And a lot of people were saying, oh, let's go back to old spelling. Let's go back to, you know, the way the text looked at the time. And so, and people were talking about the death of the author in relation to men's writing. But in fact, editing and modernizing spelling is a way of having, of asking questions of a text. You have to say, oh, I'm not sure what grammar this is and what does this mean and you put notes where you hypothesize and then people look at the footnotes and they look at the text and they get into arguments about what it means and that in itself is part of a process of of raising the value raising the stakes of interpretation hasn't happened to women enough too many penguin editions and other editions are poorly done with old spelling and no one's even modernizing spelling makes you ask questions mm. so people haven't decided you know, is this a verb? Is this a noun? What does this mean? Um, and um, that's a real problem. And, you know, things to move forward, we need better editions. Absolutely. And in terms of particularly the, the focus of this podcast, which is trying to um, get academic research into a, into a wider um why do we oh, sorry, that might have been a bit narrow. No, no, I think that, that was brilliant. I mean, I mean, unless we can be getting these editions, getting these poets out into sort of penguin editions and on mm. the shelves of a normal bookshop as opposed to an academic library, you know, these these female authors aren't going to be read. So, yeah, I was just I was sort of wondering on that note, do you think that this is a movement that we're perhaps returning to now? And one of my tutors said the other day in a class that he thinks someone's definitely working on an edition of Phillips right now. Do you think these female authors are enjoying a revival? Uh, coincide with the revival of, of kind of more old-fashioned heavy editing and modernized spelling and and well yes i mean I elizabeth hagerman um uh, in the states is working on phillips it's just it's just we've just been waiting a rather long time for it i mean uh, it is happening and she's an excellent scholar so um you know i'm hoping that's happening um i don't know if they're enjoying a revival that's interesting i have been talking about these things for some time and there was sort of a sense of fatigue almost and a sense of reaction against women's writing which might have been to do with the kind of ghettoizing I think that you were alluding to one place where there's definitely revival and we'll see more of it is in in the scholars who are in Australia and New Zealand people like Ros Smith at ANU and um, Sarah Ross at the University of Wellington They've been looking at the material text. So they're looking at, for example, marginal annotation, which might sound very esoteric, but when it's by Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, in prison, you know, it's actually a very creative form of writing. It could even be poetry itself. So I think there's a revival of interest in, um, I mean, the other thing about marginal annotation is it gives evidence of women's reading. 
which is really valuable. So Roz has been here in Oxford looking through uh, the Bodleian and looking through the college libraries to find examples of women's marginal agitation. This is giving all sorts of insight into networks of readers, what they read, what sort of comments they made. I mean, in some ways you can say it's a bit limited because we don't always say everything about our, what we think about our reading, just what we write in the margin. But it's still valuable work that's giving us a bigger picture and you asked earlier on, did women's writing grow? Yes, it certainly did. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the 1580s, um, the early 1580s is before Shakespeare. So you have to think about English literature not being a major literature, not having much, not that much in it. You know, um, you've got Sydney writing, you've had George Gascoigne and people. By the mid 17th century, so much has been written and women are really interested in this. They're interested in plays and poetry. So by the 17th century, you're getting many, many more women um, who are reading, writing in English and then imitating it. When I was talking about women and grammar school earlier, I was meaning they don't get taught Latin. Mm -hmm. But as there's more written in English, there's, there's more opportunity for women to write too. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask that, actually. Do we have kind of any evidence about how much women were reading, how much women were... I mean, obviously, people like Catherine Phillips were growing up in a kind of family where she would have... French, been yes. But, um... Yeah, she read a lot. Um, English English sort of um, pastoral romance and plays. Um, she calls all her friends pastoral romance names, so she obviously liked mm. pastoral romance a lot. Um, but, but they also read... She read French. French was very fashionable yeah. then. So she read French romances as well, and she translated from French, as you know. So in terms of your sort of average middle-class girl whose brother's at a grammar school, you know, what kind of things is she reading in, in the... There were things, I mean, uh, um, there were things called dame schools, so that, um, and women might teach in these schools and, and girls would learn, and Phillips went to a girls' boarding school. So there was some, you know, more and more education. And as, as more things, as things moved out of Latin into the vernacular, there's more opportunities for women there. Um, and some women learned Latin. I mean, aristocratic women in the 16th century. Um, Roger Ascombe's best pupil was Lady Jane Grey, who he just said was the best Latinist. Queen Elizabeth was a terrific Latinist. Lady Jane Lumley translated Erasmus's Iphigenia um, out of Latin into English. So... There were learned women. In the 17th century, Lucy Hutchinson was extremely learned and uh, translated the Roman poet Lucretius, um, a very, very impious poem, a poem that was that denied God and um, saw the world as made of atoms. And she and she then sort of she sort of apologized for translating it. But she also sort of said, well, I translated it, you know, while I was looking after my kids as if it was like really easy to do. So she was also sort of saying, yeah. you know, she wasn't ashamed. No, and maybe trying to encourage other women to sort of follow her example. I just wondered if, based off of all of that, is there, I mean, we've obviously dwelt on Catherine Phillips quite a lot. Is there any other any other writer of the period who you'd sort of recommend to a, an interested, but perhaps not quite so academically minded reader who might be able to access this period? Well, I would recommend Hester Poulter, whose um, works have been edited now and it's very prolific, as I said. I mean, there are a number of interesting writers. Um, Emilia Lanier wrote uh, an account of um, Genesis and the Fall in her Salve Deus, which um, 
sort of reverses the usual blame on Eve, which is interesting. Lucy Hutchinson wrote a poem called Order and Disorder, which also retells the fall from, a, you could say, from a woman's point of view, or at least she has much more uh, female perspective in there. That's not her only interest. Um, and people really like Margaret Cavendish, who wrote in all sorts of genres, lyric, poetry, short stories, an interesting short story called The Contract, um, and was very interested in um, the world of natural philosophy and science. And that's something that um, people find very interesting. I mean, um, I'm not myself, so... Um, it's just not my sort of style. I sort of prefer Catherine Phillips, but no, absolutely, but, yeah. I'm absolutely allowed to have your own preferences. I just thought it might be nice. For yes, absolutely, yes, and, yes. and then of course there's Afro Ben, but actually you count as a different period. And check out our episodes from other. Well, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you very much for your time. I'm ideas sure for new episodes. Really well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk. Thank you.